What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates, WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD in Kasilof and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, our guest is Christopher Lane. Um, Christopher is the author of Shyness, How Normal Behavior Became a Sickness. He is the Pierce Miller Research Professor of Literature at Northwestern University, and he's the author of several books, including uh, the co-editor of Homosexuality and Psychoanalysis and the editor of Psychoanalysis of Race. Um, so welcome to Madness Radio, Christopher Lane. Thanks so much. Now, you've written a really interesting book uh, about shyness and the promotion of disease by um, pharmaceutical industry and uh, psychiatry, and it's getting a lot of attention in the media, and it's, it's really opened up a big discussion. It's a really interesting book. I really encourage people to check it, check it out. How did you get interested in, um, in the question of, of shyness and psychiatric disorders? You have a, a background as a literature professor. Is that right? That's correct. Um, and I'm also a teacher. And many of the kids that I teach are on some kind of medication. Um, so we'll, I wanted to know why they and their uh, psychiatrists felt that meds were necessary for relatively mild problems, problems, in fact, that earlier generations had dealt with quite differently. And that's how I, I got interested in um, the question of shyness. Um, but I'd also written a book on how the Victorians thought about antisocial behavior in, generally, in general. And um, when, I, when I thought about writing a sequel to that book, uh, I interviewed a number of psychiatrists today and asked them, what, what do you think would have happened if um, misanthropes were, were, when the, were from the Victorian era um, were born today, if they, would they be medicated? And most of them said, yes, they probably would be. And so the question for me was whether medication was being used to eliminate um, really a, a huge range of emotions along with the suffering that they're supposed to counter. Um, what, I, what I was interested in was sort of the unforeseen effects of um, all of this um, massive increase in diagnosis of anxiety disorders and psychiatric disorders in general. And that's what led me really to the American Psychiatric Association archives. What I wanted to do was determine exactly why 112 new psychiatric disorders were added to the third edition of that diagnostic Bible in 1980. And so I was able to put together the backstory, which is completely fascinating, based on all the memos and the votes, um, the documents that had circulated behind the scenes that no one really had seen or written about. Um, but the statute of limitations on them had expired quite recently, and so I was able to review them and copy them, and it was, it was quite disturbing to what I saw. Now, this is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is kind of the Bible of mental illness and psychiatry. It's sort of a listing of all the different disorders, and it guides professionals on how to make a diagnosis and how to to say that someone has this mental illness, that they have this disease based on all these different criteria. 
That's right. And it's, it's um, I mean, the experts uh, uh, really right across the mental health or the health professions, I mean, you're looking at school counselors, you're looking at prisons, at courts, um, and uh, obviously the, the, the whole uh, psychiatric and, and uh, medical profession. So it's, it's really an incredibly influential document. That's why its nickname is the Diagnostic Bible. And really not just in this country, but around the world. Um, a few uh, adjustments in phrasing or new criteria or certainly new disorders begin to be picked up um, in other countries that take the manual extremely seriously and in fact invoke it chapter and verse. So what, what, what happens here with, in, in Washington with the, the next edition of the DSM will really have a, have a ripple effect on diagnostic rates of mental health really around the world. So you were able to go into the archives and with your um, approach of, of being a literary, uh, of being a literature professor and taking a really cl close look at the documents behind the DSM, mm -hmm. you're really able mm -hmm. to look at its internal workings. What kinds of things did you discover when you did that? Well, <laughs> maybe the most extreme was uh, a proposal for something called chronic complaint disorder, <laughs> which aimed to pathologize people who grumble about the weather, the energy crisis, and taxes, and even racetrack results. And um, the author wrote that the person with this disorder would say, oy vey, a little too often. And this is a quote, inflict their persistent and consistent complaining in a high-pitched whining fashion, which is especially noxious to the listener. And that was, that was an extreme, and fortunately, they were wise enough not to approve that one. But other proposals were for chronic undifferentiated unhappiness disorder. Um, and then there were, there were obviously the, there were the 112 new disorders that were approved, including social phobia, which um, in, first in, included symptoms such as fear of eating alone in restaurants, concern about hand trembling when one is writing a check, and avoidance of public toilets or restrooms. Um, and it's those those, those uh, criteria are still in the DSM. But what I also found were, uh, were, were just sort of, um, first the, the slant toward biomedical explanations um, for suffering within American psychiatry. Um, the task force was composed entirely of people who uh, focused on neuropsychiatric and biomedical explanations for suffering. They actually met for four years before it even occurred to them to include people from other branches of psychiatry. So it was, was really tilted toward an outcome that the people um, were already predisposed to. And then as, as Isaac Marx um, put it to me, he's a, um, a world-renowned expert on anxiety, uh, emeritus now at the University of London, the, the consensus was arranged by leaving out the dissenters. So basically those who disagreed with the approval of the new disorders, one of the key ones was whether panic should be renamed panic disorder. And that was at a conference that was sponsored by the pharmaceutical company Upjohn. Uh, 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 Isaac Mark said um, he basically was not invited to subsequent meetings. He'd made his dissent clear, but it was never registered uh, formally. And so people went ahead with the new disorder and with uh, dozens of other ones, um, basically accepting only the input of those who agreed 
that, that these were new psychiatric conditions. Now, how does this all relate to, because it's basically, it's a medical and scientific document. So the image I think that we have is that there's all this testing and clinical studies and research, and that it's a very grounded in science um, book that comes out that guides the, the diagnosis. But you, you're actually describing a very political process that's about backroom deals and negotiations of people's prestige and their reputations and the influence of the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, if you look at the media reports around DSM-5, the new manual that's scheduled for uh, 2012 publication, you'll hear, uh, you'll see Daryl Regier, the, one of the the co-chairs of the task force saying we're dealing only with science these days and we may have made mistakes in the past but um, basically the DSM gets better with every edition and that sounds great but uh, in, in fact it just simply isn't true I mean if you look at um, some of the science for instance for the justification of uh, avoidant personality disorder Robert Spitzer himself in one letter uh, explained that he was pushing for that on the basis of one patient that he had personally supervised. Uh, and and there, were, there were other sort of just remarkable non-responses to the questionnaires that were sent out, um, which, which meant that the, the number of people um, who, you know, in, in terms of comprehensive coverage, comprehensive um, research of the field trials was, was very slim. And it was often driven by uh, uh, psychiatrists who had a personal stake in ensuring that the disorders would make it in. As, as Spitzer put it to me in one interview, you know, if, if, if there's a drug treatment um, looking favorable and the drug company is pressing the FDA for it, um, there's a sort of synergy between that drug company promotion and the ease with which a new disorder can enter the diagnostic manual because it suddenly um, it, 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 it seems as if there's justification for including it. And they had a big fight over premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which still officially is in the appendix to DSM-4, although it has its own diagnostic code, which means that, um, that you know, um, physicians and psychiatrists can prescribe uh, Sarafem, which is basically a lavender-colored uh, version of Prozac. It's maybe one or two molecules different, but it's still the antidepressant that's been repackaged uh, for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And of course, there was you know, millions of dollars were spent in uh, advertising to promote that disorder, but, but people were extremely unhappy about it, still are. There were resignations from um, the, the major committees over those discussions. Um, but that's a, that's a clear case where um, the drug company was pressing for um, a, the, the new disorder because it could, it could extend its patent on Prozac if it, if it relabeled the drug as Sarafem. Now tell us about um, shyness because I know that social anxiety disorder is sort of the case study that your book looks at in depth to, to really reveal these dynamics that are going on in all the diagnoses. Shyness is an extremely common um, personality trait or behavioral trait. There's really a 50% chance that your listeners will consider themselves shy or will identify as such. What I found um, with the, 
the backstory of DSM-3 was that basically the, um, social, the symptoms for social phobia overlap so uh, magnificently with shyness that they're almost interchangeable. And particularly with the, with the approval of avoidant personality disorder too, um, part of the discussion of that um, centered on whether people took their cars to work or preferred public transportation. And quite serious. That was, that was part of the so-called sort of scientific discussion. In terms of deciding whether people were shy or whether they could be in public or whether they needed to be in their cars. Exactly. And whether, whether taking a car was then a sign that you were avoiding uh, other people or whether it was just simply more convenient because you had a bad commute on public transportation and you needed a more direct route. I mean, it's it just astonishing that, that obvious things like that didn't seem to occur to them. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. But at any rate, um, the psychiatrists themselves were so concerned about the overlap with shyness that they put in a paragraph on DSM-4 saying, um, physicians beware, like try not to confuse the two things. But there's a, there's a vast psychiatric literature that basically acknowledges it's very hard to tell them apart. And increasingly, um, with, the, with the new editions of the DSM coming out in, in 1987 and then again in, in 1994, the threshold for um, diagnosis was lowered quite dramatically so that, um, I mean, new things were added such as public, public speaking anxiety so that, uh, uh, and people who felt um, anxiety, anticipated anxiety about saying the wrong thing or acting in a way that could be construed as embarrassing. <laughs> um, I mean, these, this, is, this is literally in the DSM. And so that's why they included that caveat, please try not to confuse it with shyness. But in fact, the whole basis of the disorder is that it, it, it totally overlaps with that, with that very, very common behavioral trait. What we found with, um, with GlaxoSmithKline um, was they, they found the criteria for the disorder so malleable that they could in fact press for diagnosis by encouraging people to relabel their shyness, social anxiety disorder. And they spent over $93 million in one year on uh, a public awareness campaign for the disorder, not for the drug. They wanted people to second-guess themselves, to question whether their ordinary shyness was in fact something more serious. And this is what the drug companies do all the time, particularly with the increase of direct-to-consumer advertising. They put the questionnaires up on the web. They distribute the literature, the brochures, where people can sort of tick off on a small scale, one to five, normally, you know, are you anxious about people in authority? Do you dislike going to parties alone? And, and other factors like this, do you dislike speaking in front of your colleagues at work? And for, if, you, if you have enough ticks or enough um, high numbers, you can then go to your doctor and say, hey, it looks as if this is, this is me. This is what I'm suffering from. Now, this is something that's actually relatively new because the, the direct-to-consumer advertising, the, the um, TV commercials and the bus stop ads and the ads in magazines and the website questionnaires that you're talking about, I mean, that only came in in the 90s. Is that right? That, well, late 90s, and actually 1997 to be specific, 
which was the year the FDA relaxed its rules on pharmaceutical advertising. And I've got some numbers for your listeners just to give them a, a sense of the scale of the increase. Let's look at the year before that. You've got $595 million spent on advertising across the board for um, the pharmaceutical companies. The year that the FDA relaxed the rules, that rose, the total spending rose to $843 million. And by the year 2000, the total direct-to-consumer spending had reached $2.5 billion. That was nine years ago, of course. And um, it, today, it's estimated at over $25 billion, which means roughly $10 million a day is spent on direct-to-consumer advertising for a litany of uh, pharmaceutical products. And that advertising has soared at the same rate that the number of prescriptions and the profit that the companies are making has also risen. Is that right? Absolutely. Although the, the profits for SSRI antidepressants has fallen because so many of them are now off patent. What we're actually seeing is the, 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 the real growth area is with bipolar disorder 2 and 3 as diagnoses. And um, that's tied to the fact that uh, antipsychotics or neuroleptics, which are prescribed to treat bipolar disorder, are still on patent. And so they're major revenue earners for the drug companies. And what, what your listeners will also know, they'll recognize from all the ads in magazines and, and on the radio and on TV, is that the drug companies are trying to link bipolar disorder with depression so that they can meet both markets and so that they encourage people to say, you know, when, when you're down in terms of bipolar disorder, it's not part of that disorder. It's actually a symptom of depression, a second one. And therefore, this is the drug that will meet both problem. And the shift towards neuroleptics or antipsychotics is very cynical, I think. It's, it's entirely due to the fact that these are still on patent. And it's also, we're, we're finding out just how cynical from revelations about, say, Joseph Biedemann at Harvard Medical School, the man responsible really for putting two-year-olds on these drugs, uh, where so many young children have died. Uh, over, over 955 had uh, Massachusetts General were, were taking that drug after Rebecca Riley died from it, age four. And you have to ask yourself, you know, what is a four-year-old doing being prescribed this very dangerous drug? It's never been approved for the treatment of childhood bipolar disorder. How do we really know that, that bipolar disorder is uh, an affliction affecting a two-year-old or a three- or four-year-old when children cycle through so many moods and phases in, in the course of normal development. I, I think it's a very dangerous path that the, that the psychiatric profession and the drug companies decided to take, particularly as those drugs are being prescribed off-label and they're just never approved for children in the first place. So from the consumer standpoint, they are led to believe that there is this objective scientific process going on where new disorders are being discovered and effective treatments are being cooked up in laboratories. But in fact, um, and largely because of this patent process where a drug stays under patent for a certain number of years and makes a lot of money for the company, and so they have a real push 
to get that drug in as many prescriptions as possible. And then as soon as it goes off patent, there the generics come in and they can't make as much money off of it. So they're constantly trying to expand their markets in this very cynical way that even gets them to try and get two, three, four-year-old children on these drugs, despite the dangers that are, are going on. And then also this um, other phenomenon that we've been talking about, about taking very um, uh, gray area kinds of problems like shyness and then trying to convince everyone that they are actually mental disorders that are shouldn't be accepted and that should be medicated and that they actually can be treated chemically by by drugs. What were some, what were some of the other things that you discovered in your research around uh, shyness and how it was being marketed? Shyness in particular uh, was being included through a public awareness campaign that was called Imagine Being Allergic to Other People, which is a very extreme um, way of, play, of, of putting the problem. But it was, it was basically a picture of uh, a relatively young man staring into a teacup. The, the text below it was uh, a series of, of statements about how isolated he felt, how alone, how um, difficult he experienced interactions with other people. And then there was uh, a 1-800 number for people to call. And the drug company which had paid for it, this is GlaxoSmithKline, had, had, had none of its fingerprints on there. I mean, it took a number of investigative journalists to find out that behind the scenes, they had been sponsoring a group called Freedom From Fear, which is mentioned on the campaign, and that this was part of the, the public relations campaign that was set up through Conan Wolf, the, the Madison Avenue-based uh, PR company, which has you know, clients from Visa to Hilton Hotels. I mean, they're, 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 really, they're really adept at pushing a message. And in particular, they're, they're very good at masking negative data. And so GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, was really posing as a charity, and it actually was a public relations campaign. Absolutely, and this is this is what they do um, in terms of support groups. Two patient support groups of two thirds of them are funded by the drug companies, and what they then encourage are is for various active, often photogenic members of those groups to to address the media to say this is my problem, and any naysayer or dissenter has to then deal with the this sort of vociferous argument from. The, these paid consultants who are then saying, you know, you're denying my suffering, you are minimizing a very serious condition, I have social anxiety disorder, and when, when it's rebuked by people saying the DSM lists sort of fear of using public restrooms and concern about hand trembling when you're writing a check, that's, that's beside the point because I have low serotonin and that's the that's the reason why I have social anxiety disorder. I mean they're 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 very much sponsored to rebut criticism of of the process. Let's take a let's take a little more close look at that because I think that's a really important uh, uh, dynamic because I mean people are suffering. There is a tremendous amount of um, real emotion and distress and crisis in our society and then what happens it seems like people buy into the idea of defining their experience as a disorder that needs to be medicated. And there's a tremendous 
payoff for that because it's easily understandable. Oh, so-and-so just has an illness, and it's something that, that can be explained. It's a, it's a very easily um, conveyed soundbite. It's very simplification of the, of the problem, which is often a complicated problem. And then you have this difficulty, and I've, I've seen this change over the years because I've been involved in these issues for about eight years now, and there is a, a somewhat more willingness to talk about it critically and to try and think more carefully about what's actually going on and to look at the role of pharmaceutical company marketing. But there is this incredible defensiveness. It's almost like you cannot challenge the validity of something being a disorder that needs to be medicated without negating someone suffering when they're actually they're two separate things you can completely understand that someone is suffering and needs help but also not buy into the pharmaceutical advertising that's going on well, I think that the, the question here is how much hype and spin is given to the problem so it's 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 so often over dramatized and made to seem far more extreme than it is I you know obviously some people chafe when they when they hear that they're sort of they they've maybe bought into a certain perception that, you know, the, the economics of it, though, are very real. At the same time, I, I, I was fascinated in writing the book by the kind of comfort that, that is gained from these abstract terms because they're often very reassuring to people, in part because the language of a disorder references the brain, um, the, the implication uh, that one has a chemical imbalance, is also very impersonal. It implies that there's just there's, there's some abstract problem that medication can fix, and therefore it's it's sort of it, it's not tied to anything like environment or peer pressure or cultural influences and 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 social effects and so on, even generational shifts in the way we think about behavior, which is so crucial to thinking about this. And, and since obviously shyness in the 50s was often prized as a virtue or uh, was seen as appropriate bashfulness and, and, and modesty. I don't want to sort of idealize that condition. There were all kinds of uh, associated problems with it, particularly for women. But there's been a massive shift in the way that we think about these behaviors. What I found, though, is that the defensiveness is in part attached to the, the very abstractness of the idea that this disorder is to do with brain chemistry and nothing more. Of course, it's a, it's a very oversimplified way of thinking about the brain, which is formidably complicated. And um, what we know from research is that low serotonin is not a predictor of depression or anxiety. You can have people with low serotonin who experience no depression. You can have people with high, high levels of serotonin who do. And so the relationship or the causal idea of it, is, it has not been proven, which means that those who are continuing to peddle that idea are, I think, being intellectually dishonest. But we do, we do need to think about the comfort that is gained from these labels and also the fact that, that, that there is real suffering here. And I'm not, uh, as I'm sometimes accused of, saying, you know, shyness, social anxiety is simply a social construction. And therefore, suffering too is something that's uh, by implication fabricated. No, suffering is real. But the question is how we interpret it. The, the question is whether we construe that it's a mental psychiatric condition or whether it's a relatively benign behavioral trait 
that some people enjoy, some people prize as a kind of eccentricity or quirk, uh, or simply a feature of their of their personality, and other pe- other people do find more limiting. But then there are a huge number of non-psychiatric ways of addressing that. After I wrote a, an op-ed um, for the New York Times about um, the way shyness was being diagnosed in children. I, I just received, you know, hundreds of responses from anxious parents saying, you know, our school counselor is advising this kind of medication for our daughter or this kind of treatment for our son. What I often wrote in response was that they might take a look at a book called The Shy Child by Philip Zimbardo, which um, was written before Prozac and Zoloft and Effexor and Paxil came on the market and therefore has nothing to say about such antidepressants, but is packed with great advice about how to draw someone out if they're a little introverted, how to encourage them to participate. One of his big rules is you don't label, you don't represent it as a problem, you don't make someone more self-conscious by saying, this is the feature, the defining feature of your personality. And so I think that that, that issue about um, labeling does cut both ways. Yeah, I think it's Im- important because the uh, the labeling itself can both be stigmatizing. It can create you, separate you, and people have discriminatory attitudes. It can also create a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. You start to believe that what you've been told about yourself is true, and then you change to create that expectation to meet that expectation if you're just tuning in this is madness radio we're speaking with christopher lane who is the author of shyness how normal behavior became a sickness what about people who are having experiences of shyness or introversion they get a diagnosis of social anxiety disorder and then they get on medications what's been the experience are people getting helped is there a placebo effect are is it creating a lot more problems than it's solving and does it sort of channel people away from looking at these non-medical non-drug alternatives that might actually be more effective in the long run Certainly there is a placebo effect with even a drug like Paxil, um, where 80% of the drug's efficacy or effectiveness has been shown to be uh, due to placebo alone. Of course, that leaves the 20% issue. But when researchers um, looked at the figures that GlaxoSmithKline and others had submitted to the FDA in order to get the drug approved, they found that actually on those, on the basis of those figures, none of these antidepressants um, should have received FDA approval. So that's a really serious point to underscore. The second thing is that we are finding uh, very large numbers of um, people who have been diagnosed with social anxiety disorder and who are trying to come off Paxil are experiencing a really quite severe withdrawal symptoms due to the problems, medical problems uh, associated with that drug. Um, I could, I could uh, explain that if, you're, if you'd like. It's basically um, due to the fact that Paxil is unique among that class of antidepressants. It's, it's an anticholinergic as well as an antidepressant, which means it affects the cholinergic system in the central nervous system and the brain, which is the part um, of, of, of our CNS and brain tied to fight or flight responses. Um, and, and what the drug does is present a false neuronal picture to the, to the brain and central nervous system. 
And so the receptors um, in the brain assume they're in less demand and they, and they downregulate. And what happens when people come off the drug, and Paxil in particular, is that there aren't sufficient receptors in the brain to cope with the adjusted levels of serotonin. And so people cycle through really extreme moods. I've, I've, I'm, I write about one, uh, one case of a woman who wrote to me from uh, a patient support group who said that she'd never experienced panic attacks in her life, but she had such a severe one, she really thought she was gonna die. There are, there are cases winding their way through the courts right now about um, pe- people coming off Paxil who have uh, experienced completely uncharacteristic uh, levels of suicide, uh, obsession with suicide, and uh, levels of, of aggression and anxiety. And then there is a, a litany of other physiological effects tied to the drug, which make it really serious to do with uh, risk of stroke, renal failure, blood platelet aggregation problems, and so on. All of which, then, when, when you go back to the criteria in the DSM and you say, wait, this drug is being prescribed for people who feel anxious about going to parties, who dislike eating alone in restaurants, I mean, you, you start to sort of weigh up the two, the two sides of that equation and it just seems so astonishingly unbalanced that it's amazing this has not received more attention earlier. Now, was Paxil one of the drugs that became promoted in the wake of 9-11? Can you talk a little bit about um, generalized anxiety disorder? Yes. Paxil was the drug that was pushed by GlaxoSmithKline in October, uh, uh, right, just, just a month after the attacks. What the drug company did was run ads, and they were all over the TV featuring a woman saying, I keep fearing that something awful is going to happen. And so, of course, there was a spike in prescriptions for generalized anxiety disorder at the time based on the fact that people were obviously traumatized by 9-11 and had no way of accounting for it. There's simply nothing of that magnitude or horror that had happened in the country. And when you, when you then turn to the DSM, DSM-3 in particular, which was the first to feature generalized anxiety, what you find is that it was a catch-all term for everything that those on the, on the task force could not place elsewhere. They were relatively comfortable with their definition of panic disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. They kept, as I, as I mentioned earlier, kept increasing the number of symptoms for social phobia and then they renamed it social anxiety disorder. But generalized anxiety was, was as, as Robert Spitzer confirmed to me in an interview, a, a catch-all for everything that couldn't go elsewhere. Robert Spitzer was the main architect and designer that got the DSM beginning in the first place. Absolutely so. He was he was the chair of the task force for the for DSM-3 and for 3R. So he was exactly, as you say, the architect for those 112 new disorders that came on the books between 1980 and 1987. Now, he was a real crusader, and it became kind of a personal quest for him that was very much tied to his own professional ambition. It, it wasn't like he was some great scientific laboratory experimenter who discovered a lot. It was really more of a political and career charge for him. Tell us a little bit about sort of the, the kind of the origins of the DSM. And Well, uh, uh, I think one key thing to mention is uh, Spitz's role in negotiating these, these between these two sides over whether homosexuality would remain in the psychiatric manual. 
And this blew up um, in 72-73 with very conservative uh, hardliners in psychiatry insisting that it remain. And the gay rights movement uh, adamant that it had to be eliminated. And one of the, one of the key points of concern was at, at an APA meeting in San Francisco where there were demonstrations and it got quite heated. And Robert Spitzer played uh, at the time a very key role as an able diplomat in negotiating between the two sides, trying to appease the hardliners in his profession who didn't want homosexuality removed as a mental disorder. And obviously, the gay rights movement, which insisted that it, that it had to be, that it was just simply unacceptable to define lesbians and gay men as mentally ill on the basis of their orientation alone. And, and so various compromises were reached, including, I think at one point, egotistonic sexual identity. And what this, what this evolved into was gender identity disorder, which is now more of a hot-button issue for transsexuals, in part because in order to in order to, to get approval for various medical and operations, they have to accept the DSM diagnosis. So it's, it's, it's a very complicated issue for them. But at any rate, Spitzer was a central figure in, in negotiating between those camps. And, and one of the other things that appealed to him at the time, uh, that, that was appealing about him at the time, was that he trained as a psychoanalyst. Uh, he was actually a Reichian, and he'd been in contact with Reich in the 50s. One interesting anecdote was that he, he'd written when he was getting poor results, and Reich wrote back saying this must be due to fallout from the atomic bomb in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I mean, it's, it's just hilarious. And, and Spitzer was quite serious, quite an acolyte, but he did a 180 and began to become very interested in in diagnostics and procedures around that, and increasingly uh, adopted almost wholesale biological explanation for behavior and for suffering. And so his ties to the psych psychoanalytic community became very fragile, particularly as his task force met for four years before it even occurred to them to have someone from psychoanalytic psychiatry represented. And when that person was brought on, he felt that he was such a token figure uh, who was hardly ever listened to that he resigned quite promptly, saying he's experiencing an Alice in Wonderland feeling from the whole, the whole episode. It was extraordinary. How did the DSM get started? Was Spitzer one of the people who said, look, we need to have a more scientific basis for um, psychiatry, and so let's come up with a manual that's going to basically make everything uniform and regulated? Well, the first DSM from 1952 actually evolved out of a number of military memos from, from um, psychiatrists in the, in, the, in the U.S. Armed Forces who had uh, observed behavior that they characterized as, say, passive-aggressive. This is really the basis for what we now have as passive-aggressive personality disorder, where a series of servicemen in the, in the Second World War and then in the Korean War who were not following orders to the satisfaction of their officers. What the, what the APA did was take that literature and basically reproduce it verbatim in DSM-1 and 2, the first two editions. And what, what you then found was that they, they were starting to diagnose civilians, in particular housewives, who were, quote, procrastinating and dawdling over the laundry 
and doing the shopping, um, this language is still in there in the DSM quite amazingly. But this this was the basis for a number of the personality disorders that have 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 stayed in the DSM, and then various other ones were added. There was a key change in DSM two, which is the person in charge of that, and it was one person decided to delete the word reaction from a number of the descriptions. So you had previously psych, uh, you know, uh, schizophrenic reaction, paranoid reaction, based on particular episodes or based on particular events that had happened. That, that one man decided to delete the word, and thenceforth it became simply paranoia. And so the idea of looking at it in terms of a context is just erased by a stroke of the pen. Exactly. It becomes a kind of ontology. It becomes your condition, an, an illness that then defines you rather than a behavior to which you might be susceptible under various conditions of stress and so on. So it's a, a massive transformation in the way we think about illness. And we've gone from, in, in similar terms, from, from saying you may be anxiously neurotic about certain things to saying you have social phobia to saying you are now a person with social anxiety disorder. So it's, again, it's a similar kind of shift in thinking. It's incredible how this one book shapes culture so dramatically because it does absolutely train the population around the world, not just in the United States, but around the world, to think, to think of ourselves in a certain way. I mean, there's a really strong social control aspect to this. Now, tell us a little bit about the DSM-5, and I know that there are a number of new disorders that are on their way, as well as this whole question of secrecy and how confidential the process should be, because, I mean, it's a scientific process. Science is based on openness and peer review and looking at the results, but there's this whole question of secrecy in the in the creation of the new DSM. The, the new disorders being considered, they are being discussed, so there's no guarantee that they'll make their way in. Um, apathy as a disorder, overuse of the internet, extreme shopping or compulsive buying disorder, um, sexual addiction, what they call parental alienation syndrome. There's been a lot of discussion also about something called relational disorder, which is extraordinarily difficult to define, as you might, as you might guess, or, or to set a limit on even. And the task force has decided to deal with the problem of uh, working drafts and um, feedback from the public and, and even other members of the profession by insisting that everyone participating in the inner circle sign a confidentiality agreement. They're also, by the way, agreeing to limit their conflicts of interest to $10,000 in sponsorship from the drug companies. But we'll get back to that, I think. Um, when they sign this confidentiality agreement, they are agreeing not to circulate beyond the committee, even drafts of proposals, working notes, minutes, even votes. So basically, although they're, they're posting an, an, a number of sort of statements about developments to a website at the APA, and they're prepared to inform the media with sort of bulletins about what they've agreed upon, the public and actually psychiatrists also who are just interested in following along are simply unable to establish what 
has any likelihood of being approved or not as a new disorder. And what might be deleted, that's, that's now in question, I gather, in large part from um, a sense of public outrage that, that a number of these issues such as passive-aggressive personality disorder is still in this manual. It's still something that could be diagnosed, along with symptoms such as dawdling over doing the laundry. I mean, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And the secrecy is really in reaction to a lot of the public criticism and the exposure of the inner workings of the DSM, which in- including your work exposing what's been going on behind the scenes. I would hope that it's, it's, it's partly responsible for making the public more aware of what's going on and what what could still be approved in relative secrecy. I mean, if Robert Spitzer had not released the phrasing of this contract in Psychiatric News in the July issue this uh, last year, we really would not know that they were insisting that people limit their, their funding to $10,000 um, as, as a kickback from the drug company. That's the limit. The limit is 10000 The limit is $10,000. Yeah, that's... It, that's then assuming neutrality on the basis that everyone can accept $10,000 from uh, $10,000 um, in consultancy fees and so on from the drug companies, on the understanding that if everyone limits their their funding to that basis, they're they're not going to be influenced. I mean, it's that again is just completely crazy. It flies in the face of just general ethics because a conflict of interest is any time you take money from a, the, the side that has a stake in one point of view or the other. And that's a true of, in law, it's true in mediation, it should be true in psychiatric science as well. In spring 2006, the Washington Post actually determined that every expert working on the DSM criteria for depression had ties to a pharmaceutical company. And more than half of those working on the remaining um, disorders had similarly compromising ties. So absolutely to what you're saying, the profession has basically generated an insurmountable conflict of interest. And what happens now is that when the, when the FDA, which is this small, um, overworked federal agency, tries to get outside experts to weigh in on the efficacy of drugs and whether they should be approved for certain disorders, it, it basically has to presuppose that all of the experts that it consults have ties to so many pharmaceutical companies that, again, the extent of those ties uh, implies a kind of neutrality. Um, so they can't find people who have no conflict of interest. Everyone has a conflict of interest, and therefore um, that is the basis for presupposing that they'll be disinterested, that they won't be swayed by um, say a million dollars of funding for this from this drug company, as distinct from a few thousand from that. Which one. is kind of a very Orwellian updating of the whole idea of conflict of interest, and it's Absolutely. it's related also to just the general trend in the society, which I think is starting to be challenged a little bit now with the new. Uh, presidency of the, we're talking about a regulatory apparatus that has completely broken down and it's been, the regulation of the medical industry has basically been captured by the people it's supposed to be regulating, the pharmaceutical companies. Absolutely so. Christopher, we are just about out of time. Can you give us contact information and your website if people want to find out more and get in, in touch with you and find out more about your book? Sure. It's www.christopherlane.org. And people interested in the book will find there a number of interviews that I've given and also short articles that I've published in major newspapers 
describing various areas of the book. And Christopher, also, don't you have some memos from GlaxoSmithKline that are available on your website? That's absolutely right. I decided to upload um, those confidential memos to my website um, once I realized just um, what was at stake in um, psychiatrists denying that Paxil um, can, can lead to acute withdrawal symptoms, what they call discontinuation syndrome. Um, GlaxoSmithKline, a year before it pressed for FDA approval of the drug, sent around to its internal uh, executives a memo, confidential, warning that 20% of um, patients in the trials were experiencing quite severe withdrawal symptoms from the drugs. This is even after two weeks. Um, and yet, the drug company nonetheless pressed for and received FDA approval for Paxil as the one antidepressant to treat social anxiety disorder. That was a year later. So it's an extraordinary, extraordinary turnaround. What the BBC um, investigative program Panorama discovered was that GlaxoSmithKline had masked um, so much negative data that they basically lied to these um, uh, pharmaceutical regulators in Britain and uh, a number of people have described this as an, a, a massive cover-up. Um, it's, it's obviously the reason there is a lot of litigation around Paxil, um, but I felt a, a, an ethical responsibility in making those documents available on my website so that people could know that the, the drug maker itself knew about the problems with Paxil before it pressed for FDA approval. Christopher Lane, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Christopher Lane. Christopher is the author of Shyness, How Normal Behavior Became a Sickness, which is available at your local independent bookseller. He is the Pierce Miller Research Professor of Literature at Northwestern University, and he's the author of several books and the co-editor of Homosexuality and Psychoanalysis and editor of Psychoanalysis of Race. Uh, that's all the time we have this week on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio broadcasts every Tuesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD Kasilov and Anchorage, Alaska. Co-produced by peer-run mental health communities freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.